Welcome to another ABI podcast of a conversation with an interesting figure in the insolvency world. I am Felicia Turner, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm talking with Cliff White. Cliff is the Director of the Executive Office for United States Trustees. He has served in the federal government for 27 years, including previously as an Assistant United States Trustee. And he also served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General within the Department of Justice and as Assistant General Counsel at the United States Office of Personnel Management. He is an honors graduate of the George Washington University and the George Washington University Law School. Cliff was recognized with the Presidential Rank Award for Meritorious Executive in 2006 and the Attorney General's Award for Distinguished Service in 2003. Thank you for joining me today, Cliff. Well, I'm pleased to be here. Now, you've been in the United States Trustee Program for over 15 years, and you've been the director for the last two and a half years. During your tenure as director, the program has taken on major new responsibilities under BAPSIPA. How would you describe your experience during such a historic time? Well, you, you do have your facts right. I've been in government service now for almost 28 years, most of that time in the Justice Department. I took the helm as acting director of the U.S. trustee program two weeks to the day after the president signed the comprehensive bankruptcy reform law, and then the attorney general later appointed me as a permanent career civil service director. In my opinion, it has been a great advantage to me to be director during such a significant time for the program and for the bankruptcy world because, first, it did provide an opportunity to tackle an important challenge, and that's a good thing, to accomplish something worthwhile. And second, it was an opportunity, really a necessity, uh, for the program to focus on mission, to uphold the integrity of the bankruptcy system and to make the comprehensive new law work for all constituents in the system, debtors, creditors, and the general public. So we really had to focus our attention on concrete objectives. So to do that, uh, we called on everyone in the U.S. trustee program, 1,300 lawyers, financial analysts, and others, to retool our operations, to develop the new policies and practices we'd need to implement the new law. So in my experience, I have seen an incredibly high degree of professionalism, dedication, and teamwork among my colleagues in the program, and their track record, the track record of everyone in the program, has really been outstanding. So while policymakers and others properly continue to debate the merits of the the new law, uh, what I consider the most significant experience uh, I have had in the program is to have seen my colleagues in the program Uh, uh, continue to do their job. They're a dedicated core of public servants. They've done their job extremely well, and they deserve a big pat on the back, in my opinion. Well, I certainly would agree with having um, that, having been there myself. Is the reform law working? Well, it's it's too early to make final judgments about long-term success of the reform law, but from the U.S. trustee program perspective, we have uh, effectively implemented the law. And when I say effectively implemented the law, I principally mean two things. First, being effective means we have faithfully enforced the law as Congress has mandated us to enforce it. And second, being effective also means to exercise sound legal judgment. 
So as every regulatory enforcement agency knows, not every technical violation of the law requires an enforcement action. In addition, as every good lawyer knows, bad facts make bad law. So we need to bring the right cases in the right way and get the right results, and I would submit to you that we have been doing that. Okay. Now, one of the hottest topics under the new law is means testing. Can you talk to us specifically about that, and how is your agency handling its responsibilities in that area? Sure. Uh, most of your listeners know this, but let me just start by giving a brief description of means testing. I mean, each Chapter 7 individual debtor with an income above their state median is now subject to a statutory formula to determine if they've got the ability to repay some of their debts. And the case of a debtor with the ability to repay a certain amount of debt is deemed to be presumed abusive. And if a case is presumed abusive, we, the U.S. Trustee Program, are required to file a notice of that finding with the court, and then we're required to file either a motion to dismiss or a statement of reasons why we, don't, why we find uh, that a, filing such a motion would not be appropriate. So what we've accomplished is we have put a system in place to make those statutory calculations, to file the necessary notices, and to file the motions in a timely fashion. Let me give you some, some important numbers in, in that regard, some numbers we're, we're constantly tracking. We file now motions to dismiss for abuse three times as often as we did prior to the bankruptcy reform law. So the means test is identifying more cases for us to pursue, and we're prevailing in well over 90% of the time. But very importantly, we also declined to file about one out of every three presumed abuse cases that don't otherwise voluntarily dismiss or convert. And we decline because we find the debtor has special circumstances. Uh, often it may be high medical expenses, loss of income. So to me, what, what does this mean? It means that unmistakably, we are using the discretion that Congress gave us. We're not relying exclusively on a statutory uh, formula. And again, I would point out, we measure our effectiveness uh, in the means testing area, not just on how many cases we bring, but also on the exercise of sound judgment in deciding not to bring cases that should not be brought. Okay, thank you. Now, another hot area in the consumer arena is the credit counseling area. The credit counseling requirements of BAP-CEPA also provided the program with a completely new area of responsibility. How has the program handled its new responsibilities, and what are some of the challenges you've faced? Well, again, for those who might not know some of the details uh, as to what the credit counseling and financial management requirements are, under the law now, individual debtors uh, must receive credit counseling before they file a petition, and the purpose of that is to ensure that they know if they have alternatives to bankruptcy. In addition, before they receive a discharge, uh, they must take a financial management course that's designed to equip them to avoid future financial catastrophe if possible. So among other things, the U.S. Trustee Program is required to approve the counselors who are qualified to provide the counseling and education to debtors. Now, as, as, as everyone knows, the credit counseling industry has been a troubled industry. Uh, so our first priority was to ensure that we had rigorous standards in place to screen out unqualified applicants, especially those applicants who might try to scam the very debtors that they're supposed to help. Now, I'm pleased to, to report to you that back in April, the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, which is an arm of Congress, issued a report on our implementation of the new counseling and debtor education requirements. 
and is the head of one of the leading credit counseling associations, told me after the GAO put out its report. He said it was the most favorable review of an executive branch agency he had seen in his 25 years uh, in Washington. So, so why did he say that? Well, with regard to the U.S. trustee program, I would suggest the GAO essentially said three things. First, it said that the U.S. trustee program in a very short period of time had put into place an effective system for screening applicants so only qualified applicants were, were approved by the U.S. trustee program. Second, those approved agencies have adequate capacity to provide the services to debtors in a, in a timely fashion without lengthy waiting periods. And also uh, that the program has successfully ensured that the approved agencies charge reasonable fees, which run about $50. Now, in fact, by the way, our numbers show that about one-third of debtors receive services, counseling or debtor education services, for free or at a reduced uh, rate because of their inability to pay. GAO also, by the way, made a couple of recommendations which we strongly uh, endorse. Uh, first, it said that the program should issue more prescriptive guidance governing uh, fee waiver uh, policies, and we're going to do that in a, in a future rulemaking. And second, GAO said that we should conduct further research to determine the effectiveness of credit counseling. Now, by the time GAO had issued its report, we had already begun some research in this, in this area. And, and in, in fact, well before the GAO report, we had uh, asked the RAND Corporation to review existing research on the effectiveness of financial counseling. Uh, RAND concluded, by the way, that there was little available research in this area on which we could rely and that we'd have to start virtually from scratch in designing a new study. And that's what we've done. So just about uh, three or four weeks ago, we contracted uh, with, uh, the, with APT Associates, an independent uh, think tank in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to conduct a three-year study to determine the effectiveness of credit counseling. So that's a long answer to your question, but I think uh, we are accomplishing our mission as set forth uh, in the law. And we're also moving ahead with uh, independent evaluations that should help uh, policymakers in the future. Well, it sounds like you certainly had and, and still have your work cut out for you, but that you all are handling it extremely well. We pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. Bankruptcies due to the U.S. housing downturn continue to extend beyond home mortgage lenders as two home builders and a home furnishings company filed for bankruptcy last week. Home building companies Levin & Sons LLC and Dunmore Homes Incorporated, along with home furnishings retailer Levitt's Furniture, filed for Chapter 11 protection last week amid tightening credit markets caused by the subprime mortgage crisis. Levin & Sons and 37 of its subsidiaries filed for Chapter 11 protection on Friday listing over $100 million in debts. The company said that the mortgage market crisis increased cancellation rates in August. Levitt also reported a net loss of over $169 million for the third quarter and total losses of over $226 million so far this year. Dunmore filed for bankruptcy on Thursday, also listing debts in excess of $100 million. Dunmore Homes was purchased by Michael Kane in September, at which time construction on new projects had already been suspended. 
Levitt's Furniture's Chapter 11 filing on Thursday was its third in over 10 years. The Levitt's filing comes amid tough times for the furniture business, which along with home builders, construction suppliers, and financial firms, has been hit hard by the housing downturn. Forecasters expect U.S. consumer spending on furniture and bedding to grow by just 1.5% this year, making it the industry's lowest growth rate since 2001. This has been John Hartgen of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Um, Let's move to another topic. There was a recent Judiciary Committee hearing entitled the United States Trustee Program, Watchdog or Attack Dog, and you testified at that hearing. Um, Tell us, how did you answer that question? Well, I I let others answer that question, but actually, you know, I think the better analogy, rather than analogize us to a dog, would I would prefer to analogize to a football analogy. I would prefer to analogize us to my hometown New England Patriots. We have a great record, we're a great team, but we always want to keep keep doing better. So I, I hope the next congressional hearing, maybe the, the question will be posed a little, little bit differently. But in any event, look, I thought the hearing was, 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 was helpful. First, like most congressional hearings, what does it provide for most and what's the purpose? It gives you an opportunity, and the purpose is to provide an opportunity to lay out facts. So it gave us a chance uh, to uh, provide the members uh, with objective facts that establish what kind of a job we're doing. And I'd suggest here it shows what a great job we've been doing to make the new law work. But hearings also give you a chance to hear other perspectives. And we did hear other perspectives. So, for example, we heard from Judge Weedoff, who testified as a witness, who complimented the, the program for its work on the uh, Judicial Conference's uh, Bankruptcy Rules Committee. And he cited the fact that in his experience we had exercised independent legal judgment, collegiality in working with the other, uh, uh, with the members of the committee, and in a lack of any creditor or debtor, debtor bias. The hearing also gave us a chance to hear from others in the system who related some anecdotes where they believe debtors may have been disadvantaged by the new law or by our implementation of the law. It's difficult to respond to anecdotes that you're hearing for the first time. And we have 1,300 very talented people in the U.S. trustee program, but I know and I'm sure we couldn't possibly get things right 100% of the time. So, so we need to know when we fall short, and we always strive to improve our performance. But I've got to be candid with you. Some of the statements made at the hearing by some of the witnesses were simply uh, unfounded. Uh, Judge Crystal and I had a very frank discussion uh, after the hearing uh, uh, about some of the matters that, that, that were discussed. And, and I think he appreciated my comments, by the way, because he invited me afterwards uh, to, to go down to Miami uh, and, and speak to the bar there, which I look forward uh, to doing. Uh, I, I should also mention, he also, uh, you may know this, Felicia, I did not prior to meeting with him, in addition to being a scholar and a judge, Judge Crystal is also an accomplished pilot. So he uh, offered to fly me up in his airplane uh, as well when I'm down there. And I enthusiastically was ready to accept, but it's been suggested to me I need a clarification to see if he's also promising to land me uh, back, uh, back on the runway, uh, given some of the statements he made at the hearing. So uh, if you think I need to pack a parachute, let me know. But otherwise, I look forward to, to continuing the discussion with Judge Crystal down, down in Miami. 
So again, what did the hearing reinforce for, for me? It reinforced the importance of communication. There's a lot of important information that the U.S. trustee program has and that we want to convey to the bankruptcy community and also that the bankruptcy community probably needs to hear uh, uh, from us. Uh, it also reinforced to me the need that we have uh, to get information and perspectives from the rest of the, uh, the bankruptcy uh, community. Thank you. Well, Judge Crystal will, I'm sure, land you safely, but one thing you should do when you're down there is make sure you go see his office because then you will fully understand his fondness of airplanes and, and all of his work in the airline cases. Um, I think everyone understands that the program has a statutory mandate under Section 707 about potential abuse by debtors. But at the hearing, it, it turned in a different direction, and one of the questions asked at the hearing was the program's record on addressing bankruptcy abuse committed by those other than debtors. Um, can you tell us what the program's record is on that score? Sure, because I think it's a very good record, and it's one that we're, we're building on. Debtors can be very vulnerable to unscrupulous lawyers, to petition preparers, to creditors and others who want to take advantage of people who are in dire financial straits. And that's a lesson actually I learned early in my days uh, in the U.S. trustee program when I was an assistant U.S. trustee uh, running, running a field office, which I did for about nine years, by the way. We did a lot of consumer protection work uh, in, in my office. Uh, our civil and criminal enforcement efforts back then included efforts to address not just debtor abuse, but also consumer protection. And I have to give credit to the bankruptcy judges that I used to appear before, uh, principally Judge Paul Manis and now Chief Judge uh, Duncan Keir, for helping me understand the problem we were facing back then locally of scam artists who were using the bankruptcy system to victimize debtors. So for several years, the program nationally has been, has been uh, using Section 110 and other provisions of the code to, uh, to protect debtors, using 110, for example, to uh, go after petition preparers uh, so we could crack down on foreclosure scams, credit doctor operations, and, and various other schemes uh, that involved the bankruptcy system as a way that was perpetuating uh, some other kind of uh, fraud against, uh, against debtors. Recently, we have engaged in some extensive litigation against those in the mortgage industry that have been filing inaccurate claims, overcharged debtors, or otherwise violated the bankruptcy laws. And I, I would note that very, very recently, the New York Times ran a front-page story on the treatment of debtors by, by some mortgage servicers, and that story mentioned a few things about some of our efforts uh, uh, protecting uh, consumer debtors. So it's important to us, and we want, we want the bankruptcy community to know this, I mean, that we do investigate and we do take action where we find instances of multi-jurisdictional systemic abuse of the system by creditors or, or others. And, and in this regard, if I can just, if you just give me a moment, I want to, I want to praise, really commend the National Association of Chapter 13 Trustees because they've done some very important work uh, in in the issue uh, in addressing certain mortgage industry uh, issues, and uh, and they briefed us uh, on their uh, on their activities and uh, and have helped us do our jobs better. Because the fact is, by the way, that that in many instances it's the Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 trustees as well as debtors counsel who are the proper party to contest proofs of claim or, or, or to contest uh, mortgage contract uh, uh, issues. 
Uh, also, we in the program, we, we are not always going to be aware of systemic credit or abuse unless there are referrals made to us. So we've tried to beat the drums to let the bench, the bar, and others know of our interest in the area, but we don't receive a, a large volume of, of referrals. But when we do identify systemic multi-jurisdictional abuse, uh, we, we do act. Yeah, and I know when I was United States trustee, I often encouraged the um, bar members at bar meetings to let us know about the referrals. So it's always good for the community to hear it from you, too, and that you take it seriously. Um, you've talked about the communications within the bankruptcy community. How do you stay in touch with your own program? It is so big. Well, you know, we do stay in touch with our field operations, but you're absolutely correct. We, we're a large operation, 95 field offices, so it's not easy. In addition, simply implementing the bankruptcy reform law has required a lot of hard work and simply incredibly long hours just sitting in the office. But it also requires getting input from others inside the program and, and outside. So as to stay, how do we stay in touch with our own employees? Well, my predecessor, uh, this was even before bankruptcy reform, just as a, a matter of one of his priorities, was he visited every single field office. Well, I, I'm not going to be able to match that, that record, but I do think that I've got a major advantage over all of my predecessors. Uh, uh, as director of the executive office because I spent a major portion of my career uh, running a field office so I personally know many of our staff as longtime colleagues out, out in the field. One of our major strategies has been, uh, management strategies, uh, has been in order to do the things we had to do to implement the legal and other policies and practices to implement the reform law was we formed a lot of working groups comprised of lawyers, accountants, and others, uh, other employees uh, in the field. We've also rotated a number of our assistant U.S. trustees uh, to run some of our units in the executive office. You know, I, I have to chuckle sometimes when I hear observers who don't like some policy or another uh, that, uh, uh, that the program has articulated or some case that we've we've enforced out in, in the field, they, they say, well, that, that policy must have come from Washington. So, well, I don't think anyone's going to accuse me of being a hands-off uh, manager. I've never been, been accused of that before. But I do know that almost all of our national policies and practices were developed, in fact, by groups of staff that we brought in from the field. There has never been such a seamless integration of our field and our headquarters staff as there's been over the last couple of years. Also on the subject of communications, I do want to put in a plug for the National Bankruptcy Training Institute. That's our main training operation that we run out of the Justice Department's National Advocacy Center in South Carolina. We produce about a dozen uh, training programs every year. And not only does that facility allow us to train our staff on the law and best practices and so forth, but it's also an important vehicle for us in that it gives us a sounding board with staff at all levels who come through the NAC, uh, the NAC each year. So it's a, it's a big job to stay in touch, but we try to do it, and we think we, we are pretty much in touch with, uh, with the field. No, I think that's um, a very relevant plug because I'm not sure that the bankruptcy community realizes how much internal training goes on and how well organized it is. And I myself, that will be one of the things I miss the most about being the U.S. trustee is going to the um, NBTI at the NAC. Well, we'll invite you back. Okay, well, I'll come. <laughs> 
And I'm flipping to the opposite side on communication, to the external side. How do you stay in touch with such a diverse group of practitioners, judges, and others in the bankruptcy community? Well, I, I think we, we do a good job at that as well. We certainly try hard at it. It's, it's difficult sometimes, but, but it's absolutely essential. We've got to hear different uh, perspectives uh, from the bankruptcy system. You know, among other things, I do meet regularly with the various associations of bankruptcy professionals. Uh, for example, both the, the National Conference of Bankruptcy Judges and the Administrative Office of U.S. Courts have, have committees of bankruptcy judges that carry out regular liaison with, uh, with the Executive Office uh, for U.S. Trustees, so I meet with those groups regularly. The National Bankruptcy Conference, under the very, very able leadership of Don Bernstein, provides an opportunity for us occasionally to meet with leading practitioners. We've devoted extensive attention to the Judicial Conference's Advisory Committee uh, on Bankruptcy Rules, which I, which I mentioned a little bit, bit earlier. And I'll digress again just for, just for a second because I cannot say enough about the really Herculean efforts of that committee in putting together in record time the scores of new rules and official forms that have been necessary to implement the, the new law. And I'd single out the, uh, the immediate past chairman of the Rules Committee, District Judge Zilly, and also Bankruptcy Judge Weedoff in particular for, for their efforts. We've greatly benefited from our association with the judges, practitioners, and others who serve, serve on the Rules Committee. In addition, uh, we have an extremely strong relationship with the National Association of Chapter 7 Bankruptcy Trustees, the National Association of Chapter 13 Trustees. We meet with them regularly on issues they, uh, to, to help us understand their perspectives uh, on, on matters that we're, uh, we're involved in, and uh, it's essential that we stay in close touch. We, we regulate them, and we also need to be partners with them at, at the same time. And importantly, we've also reached out to consumer advocates, academics, uh, and others. I'd be remiss also, Felicia, if I didn't say how important uh, I think it is for us to participate in the ABI programs uh, that, that you put on, because by our participation, not only do we learn a lot uh, about various issues in the bankruptcy system, but your panels provide really an important what we consider to be a very important forum for us to be able to share information that I hope is of, of interest to your, to your members. So I'm keenly aware that all of us in the bankruptcy system have limited perspectives, and all of us in the bankruptcy community need to reach out to others if we're to be effective in doing our jobs. I'm sure that all of those groups appreciate your outreach. The open communication is so important to a um, smoothly running system, and I know that ABI appreciates all of the speakers that you have offered at their programs and, and hopes that that will continue and, and increase. Um, we've talked a lot about the new law and consumer issues and communications. Let's move to the Chapter 11 area. Um, even though the program has major new duties under the consumer provisions of BAPSEPA, you also have very important Chapter 11 responsibilities. How is the Chapter 11 practice for the program going these days? Well, I mean, you're right. There's a whole lot we're doing in Chapter 11 as well. I mean, our traditional duties, policing conflicts of interest, trying to address what has been really an explosion in professional fees, objecting to inadequate disclosure statements and the like, those kinds of traditional Chapter 11 duties continue to require substantial devotion of resources and, and, and attention to policy. But in my reading of, of, of the law, the, the bankruptcy reform law also gave us 
not only specific responsibilities, such as enforcing new deadlines for confirming plans of reorganization, but also I would suggest a more general mandate to promote greater accountability by management of Chapter 11 companies. So I'd point to a couple of examples. I mean, the addition of Section 1104E and, in, and, other, and in other changes made to the law, Congress has said that the presumption in favor of management continuing with business as usual after the filing a Chapter 11 petition needs to be better balanced. So I think it's a call on us to be more aggressive in filing motions for trustees and examiners. In fact, my colleague in the program, Walt Thais, and I wrote a law review article on that topic that was published just about one year ago in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal. I'll give you one other example. The new Section 503C, Congress put in place their more objective standards for governing executive bonuses, and we try to aggressively enforce uh, that those new bonus rules, and, and we'll continue to do so. To me, there's a certain common aspiration running through both the consumer and the business reforms contained in the, in the 2005 law. Namely, many of the changes seem to be designed to promote greater transparency, more objective standards, and to try to redress perceived imbalances uh, in the system. Well, let's um, conclude with kind of a broad question, but it'd be interesting for our listeners. What, what has been your greatest satisfaction over the last two and a half years as director? Well, my greatest satisfaction since 2005. I, do you mean other than the fact the Red Sox won another World Series? <laughs> I know you're very proud of that. <laughs> Yes. So you mean but other, other than, than that? that yes. Well, okay. <laughs> other than that, well, as a bankruptcy professional and a lawyer, I'm extremely gratified that on my watch, the U.S. trustee program has reflected the highest standards of the Justice Department in carrying out our mission. DOJ is the greatest law firm in the world, and we have high standards to uphold. So during my service as director, the bankruptcy law has undergone some of the most significant changes in really a hundred years, and many of those changes have significantly affected the program. So my greatest satisfaction, I suppose, is to have had the chance to manage the program during such a time and to have seen what I consider to be the extraordinarily effective response of my friends and colleagues uh, in the program in meeting the uh, what were daunting challenges presented by, by the new law. So to my colleagues, I, I would say to them now, as I've tried to say to them before, well done. I think they've done an outstanding job. Well, thank you so much, Mr. White. I'm, I'm sure that our listeners will find this conversation interesting and informative. And I know this personally, and we've conveyed it well today, that the program is certainly in good hands under your direction. And the efforts of you and the program's employees are most definitely essential and invaluable to preserving the integrity of the bankruptcy system for all interests. Thanks to all of you for listening. From the ABI, I'm Felicia Turner.